So today is the fourth exploration in the series on the theme of developing heart practices when there are difficulties, or I've sometimes called it heart practices in difficult times, or how to work, how to bring out our awakened heart when things are difficult, whether the difficulties are more personal, more interpersonal, or involving our relation to the larger world, communities, or the larger society, or what we know of what's happening elsewhere in the world. And the first two sessions that we had, which are on the uh, website uh, Dharma Seed, for in terms of the recordings, uh, were on forgiveness practice, especially, as well as what is what are some of our general approaches uh, that help us to be more skillful with uh, difficult situations and come more, as it were, from the heart in those situations. And the last session, a week ago, brought in the theme of compassion. I wanted to continue with the theme of compassion and apply it a little more fully to uh, difficult situations. Last time we looked more generally at the uh, very nature of compassion. We have our resident, uh, I think, goddess to my right, who is an embodiment of compassion, who uh, has a thousand arms, uh, each of them with uh, an eye on the hand, symbolizing both the, the uh, receptive aspects of compassion, the empathic aspect of compassion in the eye that sees what's happening, uh, that's uh, in touch with what's happening, and the hand would symbolize more action, the active dimension of compassion. And we explored that quite a bit last time. So uh, today I want to first say some more generally, uh, in a little more depth than last time, about the general approach that we, ta- that we want to take. And then I'll be more specific in the second part about uh, working with compassion in, in various ways. So in a way, we go against the grain when we intend to bring the awakened heart to a difficult situation. Because often our conditioning is to shut down, to move to blame or judgment. In other words, in Buddhist language, we would say to be reactive, to judge ourselves, to judge others, to not want to deal with the difficulty, to see it as a problem or a curse or something that would be good to go away so I can come back to my normal equilibrium and get back to what life is really supposed to be about, right? And here we are suggesting that another attitude can be more fruitful and is really a training guideline which is to be willing to open up to what's difficult with our uh, awareness, with our hearts, with our wisdom, as best we can. And to understand that that's a training, meaning that we can't immediately open to the largest difficulties, or we can't say and stay, you know, let's say if we're in the helping professions, we can't stay 
typically uh, when we begin in some sustained way with difficulties, that it is a training path and we have to be wise and skillful about how we work with difficulties. But the core intention is, comes really out of wisdom. It's that if I am simply reacting to what's difficult, I will, my um, reaction will be more automatic and will typically be less wise and less connected with my good heart. And here, our practice is really about learning to bring the good heart, wisdom, and awareness as much as possible into all the parts of our lives. As we sometimes say, no parts left out. You know, which, and, and this is a challenge. This is a, I sometimes think of this as an audacious enterprise. <laughs> you know? It is, isn't it? You know, because the world doesn't work like that, mostly. I mean, or sh- shall I say that when we look around, we see um, mixed phenomena. Sometimes we see that openness, sometimes we see that wisdom, sometimes, uh, especially when we look on larger stages, we often see um, reaction and uh, judging, blaming. I was was almost going to come up with a new word. I I could hear my, did you hear that? There was a moment I was going to merge judging and blaming and call it jaming. (laughs) But with trained awareness, I caught it a moment before it was was about to come into being. um, another way to say that is we actually take life as learning. We take everything as an opportunity for learning. Again, we've mentioned a few times, I think someone has a new book called Another Effing Growth Opportunity. <laughs> and so there's, uh, <laughs> you know, we, can, we can take uh, everything as learning and it's, we can sometimes curse about it. Right? Uh, but that is, that is really the invitation here to take everything as learning. And the vision, again, is audacious, is large, it's the sense of being able to bring that kind heart more and more to all situations and indeed to all beings. It's very clear, think of, some of you know the text of the Metta Sutta, where it says, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Very clear uh, guidance. You know, even with those with whom we have difficulties. You know, again, it's, it's, a, it's an approach which is, uh, of course, found in many traditions. It's at the heart of, I think, the Christian message, right? You know, the theme of love your enemies. Learn how to do that. Not, not easy at all. How to have an open heart even to those with whom one is difficult, uh, one has difficulties. So, the very... Um, powerful image, an image that, you know, in the last um, hundred years plus, people like Gandhi and King brought that approach even into the public realm. You know, there, there, there was a line I remember from Dr. King where he said that um, prior to reading Gandhi, I thought that the Christian message of love was only applicable to face-to-face relationships. And that when one went to the larger society or world, one had to go, come back, I think he used this word, one has to come back to what the Germans call realpolitik. Do you know that word? 
that, that sense that uh, when you look at larger um, structures and cultural values, you have to be realistic and love doesn't have a place. And he said, after reading Gandhi, I saw how wrong I was about that. That was a turning point for him. And so this is um, an approach that is being offered in all the parts of our lives, including the parts of our lives where we are citizens, where we are those interested in um, social change and so forth. And it's a hard part, you know, and a lot of this, we don't always know how to do that well. We don't always know how to uh, do that well in our um, interpersonal relations or in, or in our work in the larger society. So that intention is crucial. Also crucial, I think, when we uh, intend to bring that awakened heart to difficult situations, really all the parts of our practice are necessary. You know? So that, that core intention that I've just explored is important, but also the other parts. We could say the ethical guidelines, our commitment to being ethical, very, very crucial with difficulties. The core of the ethical guidelines is non-harming. Remember the five ethical guidelines uh, to not harm others, to not take that which is not given, and care in the areas of sexuality, speech, and substances which shift consciousness. They're all really about non-harming. And so if we are in a difficult situation with another or even with ourselves, it's helpful not only to have that intention to learn, but also to say, I commit to non-harming, which means not harming myself as much as we can, let me me reframe that, Um, as much as we can not harming ourselves, even with judgments, with blaming, with proliferation of negative thoughts, right? So the ethical guidelines are crucial. If you have a difficult interpersonal interaction, recommit to the ethical guidelines rather than suspending them temporarily. Um, And we do that even if the other person is not being ethical, right? That sometimes feels radical. That's hard. This is a, it's, it's hard to keep one's heart open when the other is not reciprocating. But I think that's our practice as well. So we follow the ethical guidelines. Um, an area that we went into a little bit last time, which I think is quite important, is the grounding in the body. And I've mentioned in, I think in passing last time, that in my own experience, um, and this came up in the discussion as well, having a kind heart for many of us leaves us feeling very vulnerable to others. Or uh, sometimes we feel I am somehow overly sensitive, right? Or I get knocked around easily, right? I won't ask for hands, but I imagine that many of us could identify that way. And, and I'm, personally I find that this um, further grounding in the body much like being almost like a martial artist. Grounding in the body, feeling connected to the earth, gives a way to balance that very open heart. You know, and there, there are even a variety of techniques that one can use, such as you know, there are techniques where you really stay connected with the belly and the body, and it kind of balances out the heart. So the heart is there, but it's not the only thing there. It's connected with the body, connected with the ground, 
you know, and there are other practices that we can use really to also to develop boundaries. I think from time to time I've mentioned a practice of imagining a shield that only lets in kind thoughts and that protects oneself. You can use your imagination for this, protects oneself against negative thoughts having too great an impact on the heart. Maybe we can come back to that. And what is that shield technique? <laughs> so uh, I'll just say briefly, it can be, can be a practice where we actually imagine, just using the imagination, but also connected with the importance of at times setting boundaries, which we talked about last time, that we can imagine the heart uh, open, but protected in some way. This is really about how do we protect the, the open heart. Uh, when we are trying to be open in a difficult situation. And so the technique is, and you might even think of a difficult situation, we can imagine like a colored shield in front of us, see what color it is. Maybe it's green or red or brown. And when you're going to a difficult situation, maybe a difficult interpersonal action, you can imagine that shield is there. And again, it's the imagination, but it actually, I find it actually helps tremendously. It's partly because of the power of intention, of intention, intending to protect oneself. And you can, you can try that. You know, don't go foolishly into overwhelming situations if you haven't practiced the shield quite a bit. <laughs> But you can try it with small situations and see how, that, see how that works. So there are body practices that can be very helpful. The mindfulness practice of just knowing what one's patterns of reactivity are. Very, very crucial. Because in difficult situations, the mind will usually be reactive. And we have to really know those patterns very well. Get familiar with them. Um, have that interest in seeing how is my mind being reactive? How am I getting a little bit lost? And track that and know it well enough so that when you see a habitual pattern starting, you can ask this question, is this wise for me to follow that pattern of thought? And maybe it's not. And mindfulness is a great um, protector in that way. And it's actually in the ancient text. It's said that mindfulness has the quality of protection. And... I think it protects us um, from others. But uh, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche was once asked, uh, what, are we, what do we protect ourselves from? He said, mostly ourselves. <laughs> so mindfulness is a, great, is a great protector. And then there's really the cultivation of wisdom, which is especially we can use reflection. We have difficulties with others, for example. We can reflect, you know, what is my responsibility? What is the other person's responsibility? Um, am I tending to, tending to exaggerate the negative in this interaction? We can ask questions about that we use to go more deeply. Um, you know, what is the background of the other person leading that person to behave as he or she is doing. And so we have really all of these um, tools and resources 
that ideally can be there with difficult situations. We have that clear intention to learn, to have there be the open heart and wisdom, and then we also can bring out the ethical uh, dimension, the ethical resources, the grounding in the body, the mindfulness, the wisdom. And so those are, those are strong resources. And so if we can actually call on those in a difficult situation, I think that, that, that we're mostly there, actually. What's most difficult about difficult situations is that we, we get cut off from our resources. Somehow we get caught in reactive patterns and our best resources, our kind heart, our wisdom, somehow are inaccessible. That's what's hardest. You know, and, and sometimes we need support from others or ways to just uh, move out of that stuckness. Not easy, you know. The most difficult situations are not, not easy. And we, need, we may need help from others and um, maybe help from the natural world, from beauty, and so forth. We looked uh, two weeks at forgiveness as a very powerful practice for difficult situations, and we can continue with compa- looking at compassion as a very valuable tool and practice. And there are these multiple ways that we can practice. The guided meditation offers us uh, one way of practicing compassion, which is to deliberately incline towards what is difficult with one, for oneself or others and then to use these phrases which are inclining towards, um, towards both feeling what's there and then wanting to be helpful, wanting to meet the difficulty, pain or the suffering with um, kindness, with action and so forth. And that really again points to this dual nature of compassion that it's both a uh, feeling state a state, we could call it an empathic state of resonating with the pain or suffering or difficulty of oneself and another. And that's literally the meaning of the word karuna, is a quivering of the heart when in contact with pain. But then there's the active response that's also part of compassion. That there's both the feeling, which in, in a way motivates us, but then there's the wish to be helpful, the wish to respond, really the intention, the intention to respond. And so in the, in the difficult situations that we might have, rather, whether concerning ourselves or uh, interpersonal relationships or the larger world, we would use these resources to um, bring about further compassion. So, for example, we can use the practice that we did, which is uh, one of the practices of the divine abodes, the Brahma Vihara, that's aligned with loving-kindness practice, with joy, with equanimity. We can use, use that practice. Our basic mindfulness practice is also a way to cultivate compassion. And there's a way that Again, in the very notion of compassion as the quivering of the heart when in touch with pain, when our mindfulness practice goes to what's difficult and stays with it, compassion naturally arises. I think um, tends to arise, I think, in both, both ways, but especially really in the, that sense of being with, 
the difficulty. And you know, I think you know when you look at the English word compassion, it means with suffering, you know, or being with suffering, the very etymology there relates to that sense of being with, accompanying, in a sense, oneself or another when there is difficulty. So mindfulness helps us to go there, just to be with what's present. And what it especially does, the mindfulness practice when there is difficulty is especially valuable because it helps us go beneath the level of views, opinions, judgments, and so forth but actually going actually to what's there in the body and what's there in the heart. And we know that with difficulties, we very often go to views, opinions, and judgments. We we have to look out for them when there are the difficulties because they, in a sense, are defense mechanisms. We use them to protect ourselves against actually feeling what's there. They may cause all sorts of problems and all sorts of difficulties, for ourselves, interpersonally, when we judge ourselves, we judge in others, but they actually are defense mechanisms. That's we think somehow will prov- if I if I actually can blame another, I don't have to feel how I'm upset or angry or disappointed. And it doesn't actually make sense when you look at it carefully, because it can cause way more suffering than actually going to the, the pain that's there. But we habitually do that. I think we've done that from conditioning over years and years. And so the mindfulness practice is beautiful in difficult situations at letting us just see what is there for me. What's happening in this difficult relationship? What's happening in my difficult interaction? What's happening with my own difficulties? And just can I just be present with what's there? Can I notice the views and the judgments tending to take off? And can I identify them with mindfulness and then come back just to being present with what's there? Not easy, right? It takes a certain amount of clear intention to do that. And, but if we have that regular mindfulness practice, we might more easily do that. The, you know, we've just had a really difficult interaction with someone and we think, it's time for my daily meditation. <coughs> Perhaps I will rehearse better ways to judge this person. <laughs> you know, where we, th- where we might think, oh, drat, I'm just going to repeat my argument with this person for the next half hour. Maybe I shouldn't meditate. Right? And it's actually good to go there and to have an intention not to just get caught in the cycles of thinking. And so the mindfulness is very helpful in that way to actually feel what's there. And the basic understanding is is that actually when we open to what's there for ourselves or for others, the heart will tend to open, there'll tend to be compassion, and we won't be as caught in what's there because we'll basically be in touch with the pain or the suffering of the situation. And that when we are in the views and the opinions and the judgments, we're, and just think of a polarized relationship with someone where it's actually very hard to actually be there and know that this is painful for both of us. We're cut off. We're cut off from compassion and we tend to be cut off from empathy. So that's why the mindfulness practice and last time we also looked at an empathy practice. What would it be like to deliberately cultivate empathy 
uh, towards another when you have a difficulty with someone. You know, and we looked at one way to do empathy practice, which is simply to imagine what, th- what is that person feeling and what really matters for that person. Again, it's to go beneath the level, typically, of views and judgments. Again, it's not to say that there's not some validity in the views and judgments. There often is, but it's also caught with some reactivity and polarization, right? And it's the truth value of our judgments and views that hooks us, right? And so when we actually touch the heart a little bit more, we can use what's of value in the judgments or the views, the truth value, but not with the reactivity and the hook. And then we can actually maybe, if we can touch the pain in a relationship, we can actually come out and say, okay, well, when you did this, that didn't feel right, right? Rather than saying, you're incorrigible, you know, or that's the, you know, what sometimes is called by some relationship psychologists as um, uh, tossing in the kitchen sink or speaking the laundry list, right? or the, some people call it the rap sheet. You know. um, and so um, how, do you, how to bring that, that quality of empathy in more and more is very helpful to really transform that quality that might be there of polarization. It's also to bring in the empathy for oneself. And that, for many of us, to bring compassion and empathy to ourselves is actually harder than to bring empathy and compassion to others. Some of us may be in the helping professions. We may be wonderful at being compassion to others and less skillful at bringing it to ourselves. So very, very crucial area. How do I bring compassion? We can use the compassion practice that we did. We can be mindful. We can deliberately cultivate empathy, you know, toward, for ourselves. Ultimately, the deepest source of compassion is when compassion is, is connected with wisdom. And in fact, one way that the wisdom tradition connected with the teachings of the Buddha is talked about in a very, very brief way. It's said to be like a bird which has two wings, and the wings are wisdom and compassion. And they somehow have to be in balance with each other. And this this is sometimes expressed in the way in the teachings of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, that actually to have any one of those well-developed, the other three have to be present some. And we have to be cultivating them. So for compassion, one of the... Uh, occupational hazards, if we are cultivating compassion, is that we'll get overwhelmed with the pain. You know? And so it's helpful to think of compassion being connected with loving-kindness, joy, and equanimity, that we need to also cultivate joy. If we're cultivating compassion, having the access to joy is very helpful. If we're too immersed in difficulties, we may get out of balance. And the connection with joy inner joy, the joy of beauty, the joy of whatever, 
others, children, art, music, and so forth, really, really crucial to, to develop. And then the equanimity dimension, or the equanimity factor, brings in the wisdom dimension. And that the compassion to be in balance has to have the equanimity. So we can see in that way that compassion without joy and compassion without wisdom or equanimity can get out of balance. We may be cultivating compassion, and this again, very common in the helping professions, right? Where there can be burnout because somehow the pain is too much. And so I love the way that this, that compassion practice is so often taught in connection with joy and with equanimity. Very, very important. And so ultimately, we, the wisdom dimension takes us uh, deeper. And we see some of the roots of suffering. And we see in particular how so much of the roots of suffering are through constructions of the mind that are unnecessary. It's not so hard when we look to social reality, right? We can see that wars and conflicts are being fought. And we say, why are they killing each other, right? I mean, from a certain perspective, it just looks like insanity, doesn't it? And maybe we look at history. We say, we look at the last few thousand years of history. My God, what kind of views and opinions did they have? Who did they think they they are? Or, Or contemporary views that are connected with suffering. Just think of the insanity connected with views of gender or race or age or sexual orientation and so forth. And there these, and it's really wisdom that can help us see more clearly. In Buddhist tradition, it's particularly to see how we tend to construct an opposition of self and other. And we think that my happiness will come in accumulating good things for myself and forgetting about others. That's an exaggeration, but in a certain way, the teachings of wisdom point to actually questioning the way that we have this sense of separation of self and other. And it points towards really looking carefully at the experience that we call pain or suffering and seeing the ways that they're actually, that the suffering is somewhat of an addition that there can be pain or unpleasant experience. And we looked at this in some depth last time with the teaching of the two arrows. Do you remember that? Where we distinguish between pain and suffering. And the, the pain, the presence of the unpleasant, is often there for us. The suffering is a kind of an addition, a reaction, often because of a concept related to self, related to the way things should be, and so forth. And as we work more to see through those different kinds of concepts, we can be more with the flow of experience in a more direct way. And we can actually see that there can be pain, but the suffering is a kind of addition to experience. And we can see that very simply in being aware of sitting with physical pain. We can see how it's hard just to be with the pain 
without trying to get rid of it and just to be present with it. And as we deepen in that inquiry, which comes out of the mindfulness practice, we come to see that in a way there can be the presence of the unpleasant, but increasingly there's not that reactivity that we call suffering. Again, distinguishing radically between pain and suffering. And we increasingly do not have that suffering and we see what are the origins of my suffering. It might be a sense in the interpersonal relations of self-righteousness. And we come more to that, to a sense that we, I think, experience in our deepest and most powerful moments that the deeper truth of human life is about interconnection, about love. And we can notice this experientially in our, probably in our deeper moments in nature, with others, in the creative process, as a sense of the flow of experience without so much of a sense of a separate self. We've looked at that when we look at the, when we've looked at the concept of um, not-self in Buddhist tradition. Difficult teaching, but we can, we can explore that more and more and see how that um, can be present more and more. From the ancient text, mere suffering exists, but no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is there. Empty phenomena roll on, dependent on conditions all. And so we can get at that sense of interconnection through the wisdom dimension. We can get at it also through the heart, through a sense of love and compassion. I think compassion, in the moment of compassion, we feel the other's difficulty as ours. Beautiful line from Mary Oliver. She says, Except as we have loved, all news arrives as if from a distant shore. Except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land, a distant shore. The sense that when that heart is open, there's the sense of interconnection. Another story from the ancient texts, the Buddha was visiting several monks who were living together and they had all taken the name of Anuruddha. And the Buddha said, you seem to be hanging out very nicely with each other. And and they answered him, we have indeed diverse bodies but we only have one mind and heart. And we have been developing that through loving-kindness practice, through the practices of the kind heart. And that they said that in doing this, they came to feel that deep sense of connection. So they decided to each call themselves by the same name. (laughs) And the Buddha said, you are living together just like milk and honey. And so ultimately, that sense of compassion deepens as we have that sense of interconnection as a way of perceiving the world and increasingly wisdom and love as being um, greater forces in our lives. There can be compassion for this whole human life, that being human is not easy, right? 
there are challenges. Many people say, I didn't ask to be here. Here I am. It's hard at times, right? It's hard at a physical level. It's hard at the emotional level. It's hard sometimes at the level of meaning. There's loss. As human beings, we all know that um, um, death is the end. That's not easy. And we can have, we can face all that and have compassion. We can have compassion for being human. And again, it goes hand in hand with the wisdom. I think also we can have compassion because of the vast unnecessary suffering on this planet. And we can also have a sense of how we can work with it. So it's not simply the receptive aspect of compassion, but ultimately having that sense of unnecessary suffering when we have those other tools and resources and can be balanced, because this is a lot to take in, then we also can be responsive. We can act. We can find our own ways to respond to the human condition and to unnecessary suffering in the world. This is what happens as compassion gets more and more developed. So may we all keep developing compassion and share many notes along the way with each other and energize and inspire each other. Thank you. We have some time for any discussion questions, and I have a treat at the end. I have, I'm going to ha- I have a musical uh, dedication of merit to end today. So, please, Mark. Yeah. Can I uh, talk some about the idea of the ten thousand joys and the ten thousand sorrows, or, um, and how that relates to equanimity? I think that comes from Chinese tradition, I believe, that that phrase. And um, in a sense, um, part of what we do as we take on what we might call a contemplative path, a meditative path, is that we uh, actually uh, learn to open to the vast variety of human experience more and more. Sometimes we want to do that. Sometimes it's somewhat unwilling. When I first started meditation, I wanted to, you know, being a young man who had um, explored a little bit with uh, um, mind-altering substances. True confession, I will never become president of the United States. I thought that meditation would be about getting to this incredibly beautiful state and staying there for the rest of my life. And um, that happened for a short period of time. But then the other experiences came in and the the act of meditation opened me in a short period of time to having to be there and notice all sorts of other experiences. Anger, fear. Fear was an early experience I, I hung out with quite a bit. Fear, anger, sadness, as well as beautiful qualities, more joy, more bliss, 
and so forth. And there's a, a way that when we follow this path, there's a natural opening to all these different aspects of things. And we also, I think, become, it's basically a stance of openness. And so we open to our own experiences. We may be more willing to go into situations that are difficult with others or with the world. And so I think the stance and the intention of meditation um, inclines us to learn how to be with this range of experiences. And that, in its, as we hang out with them more, there's a natural equanimity which arises, I think, that I know for me, it's like when I have, have studied fear or studied anger or studied sadness, I know how it works in my mind. I know the storylines. I'm not so caught by them. I see them more clearly. I can notice all of it more readily. I know how it is in my body. And I don't get so caught. And I actually can have a little more balance when those things arise. So we haven't talked so much about equanimity, but it's a really, um, I think it's partly, a nat- again, it's much like compassion. It's partly a natural fruit of practice. Simply, we hang out with difficulties, and out of that, in part, equanimity comes um, as a fruit. And then we can also deliberately cultivate equanimity in, in other ways as well. So it's a, it's a great question. Yeah. Did that get at what you wanted to get at? Yeah, pretty close. Yeah, thanks. Please. Um, out of the many useful things you said today, something really struck me yeah. like a lightning bolt. And that was that when you're in a difficult situation, it's painful for both of you. Yeah. And for me, it strikes me as, as really, if I can keep that in my mind yeah. and be aware not only of my own pain, but the fact that the other person is in pain as well, that strikes me as... A good, a good place for the two of us to meet. Yeah, beautiful reflection that um, the understanding that a difficulty, let's say an interpersonal difficulty, typically will involve pain for both. Mm-hmm. And to remember that and to cultivate that understanding is crucial. It brings us to compassion. It brings us to empathy. What so often happens is that we, we meet at the level of judgments, or opinions, or positions, right? And, and we tend to polarize, and the heart gets locked out. The heart's not there at all. And that's very common experience, right? And this is not easy, you know. And, you know I, th- I would say, try this with lower degrees of difficulty. You know, like um, an example I've been giving quite a bit in the last weeks is telemarketers. <laughs> Try this practice the next time a telemarketer calls and you're starting to feel irritation. And remember that the telemarketer is a human being. Our mind tends to go to some category, right? So, very beautiful. We can do the practice if you call, so remember it. Yeah, please. Yeah. I have a question about the limits of compassion. Yeah. Not so much in terms of interpersonal relationships, but in terms of the larger world. Yeah. Yeah. There are people who are knowingly responsible for the deaths of innocent people. Right. And uh, I have great compassion for the victims of that, but not for the perpetrators. Yeah. So where's the compassion? Where's the compassion? The question is about. 
knowing that there are people uh, who knowingly inflict uh, cruelty, inflict suffering, pain, kill other people, and uh, the compassion for, I don't know if you use the word, the victims, but um, um, comes more easily, but there's not so much a feeling of compassion for, not so easily a sense of compassion for the perpetrators, let's say. And um, that's true. We can, we can look at it. The horizon of the practice is to know that that's a possibility, but to know that it's uh, very difficult to get there. But it's very clear from both um, the ancient text and from contemporary exemplars like the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama does say, uh, I want to have compassion for the Chinese, right? Despite the atrocities, right? And, and yet um, we know that it's um, difficult to get there. It may even feel like uh, impossible to get there at certain times. So if we think of it on the model, and this is, we, we talk about this often in terms of loving-kindness practice, but I think also very much in terms of compassion practice, that there is a scale of degree of difficulty of compassion that we can arbitrarily talk about as being from zero to ten. And there are things that have happened that have a degree ten, or a level ten degree of difficulty, and compassion feels completely inaccessible there. But it can be something that we work to. We looked at that some uh, in the first two sessions uh, in terms of forgiveness. You know, same issues come up, right? Can come up in terms of forgiveness. And I actually read some remarkable uh, passages of, uh, you know, from uh, people. I, I read some, uh, some passages from interviews I did related to South Africa and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where there were people who were willing to forgive you know, state-mandated atrocities, right? That they, and, but I think the, the one way to think about it is that each of us, there's, uh, there is that uh, uh, degree of difficulty scale, and we can't force compassion or think that we should be there. But that, again, if we look to certain exemplars, we can aspire perhaps towards being there and work towards it. And it's the whole idea of all of these hard practices is that we work and develop where the uh, compassion flows more easily and we build it. But we can possibly hold as a horizon. Again, it's connected with the wisdom dimension also. And... You know, I, I gave the series of talks in the fall called The Anatomy of Ignorance. So it's also seeing the extent to which um, violence comes out of ignorance and confusion. It was pretty clear when we looked in detail at some of the examples from South Africa where quite horrible things. And, but, but, um, so I get, hope that gets at it. It's a difficult question. The idea is that we build. We don't force trying to have compassion for something where it just isn't flowing. We build up the capacity where it flows more easily with smaller stuff, and then go to these really large, intense areas um, in the future, or possibly not at all. But we, but we can hold it as a possibility. Again, we do have people like the Dalai Lama and others who have gone to a kind heart, 
even in relation to those who have committed atrocities. You know, so it's a great question. Thanks. Maybe yeah. Maybe uh, might be the last one. Yeah. Oh, it's just going to be a story related to what this gentleman has asked yeah. about. I um, work at a, at a trauma hospital where I have worked with many young gang violence victims. Yeah. And um, they come into the hospital and they're derobed of their garb. Yeah. And they're placed in a gown and they have injuries. And if you met them on the street, you'd have a hard time having compassion for them. And I have found that going into the hospital room where they have all of that stripped away yeah. and they are just begging to be heard, mm-hmm. they have all of these sorrows and traumas in their life, yeah. it has actually afforded the ability for me to have more compassion, even if I were to meet them on the street, knowing that people don't choose really to live that life. Yeah. And I've watched how nurses still treat them as mm-hmm. the young men on the street, and they get nowhere with them. Yeah. And if you find a way to put that aside, there is a way to touch them and help them. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, that story. Um, yeah, and again, it brings me back to a phrase we've, we've often, often used here, which is, in a sense, that hurt people hurt people. Right? And that and that uh, even, even we can look at that on the very uh, everyday level. You know, if someone is saying something nasty to you, if you can go and be empathic, you may have a sense that there is pain. You know, I've talked about this in terms of working with the judgmental mind and, and um, ways of having... Of, if, if Next time you're at a party and you hear someone being judgmental, and it's not being judgmental about you or party or <laughs> gathering or whatever, See if you can tune in, and is there pain beneath the judgment? See if you can tune in empathically. I'm almost positive you will find pain there, that the judgment is coming out of some pain, and so much of hurting, you know, one can't really hurt another person unless there's tremendous pain, which tends to shut down our normal, uh, open, kind heart, right? You know, and, and of course, people in certain professions can sometimes be trained to um, dehumanize themselves, right? That that happens. Yeah. Can I just follow up? Sure. What yeah. Said? I just finished reading a book called Tattoos on the Heart. Oh yeah. By Gregory Doyle, a Jesuit who started oh, yeah. Boy Industries in yeah. L.A. and it addresses that whole scenario of the things that happen to these men, or you know, starting out that are just horrific and not excusing yeah. a lot of what he said. They hold a, where he is in his center. They hold a place for them as who they really are mm. as these divine beings until perhaps they themselves can reach that point. Some never do, but it's yeah. that whole thing about, I mean, it's in, it was on the it's newly published. It was on the New York Yeah, so referring to the book Tattoos of the Heart? Tattoos on the Heart. On the Heart, uh, Gregory Boyle. Mm-hmm. And really going into, again, uh, how to be with these um, uh, persons who may have done um, um, acts of violence and how to, how to be with that. You know, again, I think, I think I'd like to see how we can connect more extreme actions with more everyday actions because I don't think the dynamics are different. You know, the, some, some things are obviously different, but the way that I react really suddenly to someone saying something mean to me and I'm reactive right back, 
I think the core dynamic of reactivity is not so different. Again, the stakes are higher and maybe uh, you know, we would, some would have ethical limits and some wouldn't, but uh, the mechanism of reactivity can be studied um, and there can be some empathy for that. Yeah, and there's a lot there. There's, I know there's a film that just came out. I think it's called Facing Fear, which is playing in San Francisco now, which is about um, um, two men coming together, uh, one of whom uh, was in a gang, kind of a Nazi-style gang, and beat up uh, a gay man on the street in Los Angeles, and they actually came back and eventually moved towards um, forgiveness. And a very strange story, they ended up working at the same place, which was strangely the Museum of Tolerance in, <laughs> in Los Angeles. But uh, it's playing right now, quite remarkable. And there's a tremendous literature. I actually had some other stories very similar to this, which I did not get to tell maybe another time, which I brought in. But um, those of you who weren't at the uh, sessions on forgiveness, there were, there were some powerful stories very much in the same um, field as uh, we've been exploring here, and it's quite remarkable, quite remarkable. There, you know, what's possible, and even when there's been ex- something extreme, is very, very inspiring, and it can it can really uh, shift our consciousness about these things, and, and have a sense of what's possible. It can be very, very important and inspiring. Okay, so I'm going to end with a, a, a musical version of the dedication of merit. Um, it's about um, two or three minutes long and it really is also about compassion that's why I chose it Uh, and it's from uh, a new album by Eve Decker how many know Eve? Eve often uh, teaches at Spirit Rock or the East Bay Meditation Center and is a professional musician who used to be in the band called Rebecca Riots People know that band? Um, from I think from, the band finished I think five or eight years ago, I forget. Anyway, this is Eve, and this is a, um, this is a dedication of merit written by the Reverend Heng Shore, who is a, a monk in Berkeley at the uh, Berkeley Buddhist Monastery in the Chinese monastic tradition. But he, he is, uh, I think, uh, European-American. And and then the music, he put the dedication of merit to the music of Lorena McKinnon. So it's a mix. <laughs> okay, ready? Passion, wisdom, and joy. 
support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.